0: Join me in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. Steve, welcome to you who may be visiting with us. Uh, I also extend my welcome to you. We're glad you're here. And if there's anything that we can do to make your visit even more profitable, please see us after. We'd love to get to know you a little bit. Uh, Romans chapter 6, we're going to conclude the chapter, though I'm not sure a lifetime is enough to conclude the chapter. Romans 6 is one of the most important chapters you'll ever read, and I would encourage you to memorize in, in regards to living the Christian life. It is, in, it is encapsulated in that chapter. It shows you how to live. And so for that, uh, with that in mind, we're going to read the entire chapter. So let's, uh, Romans chapter 6. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed." And having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things in which you are now shamed? For the end of these things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for uh, so practical and make us understand for your children. May we understand more and more what has happened to us in Christ and what is presented to us because of Christ. And Lord, for those who are outside of Christ, they may know much about Jesus, but not know Jesus. May that be a day of transformation. May they leave here with the awareness uh, of the power of Christ in them, not only the hope of glory, but the hope in this life and the power in this life uh, unto godliness. So Lord, we thank you for the gathering of the saints. We thank you for the privilege of being here. Uh, May we all have ears to hear. May you help us as many of us have come from, uh, from the world with fatigue and all the distractions. May your joy be our strength for this hour. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned, we're gonna conclude this chapter. And um, as we go on, Romans 6 becomes the foundational chapter leading us in to chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, as you look at Romans, chapters 1 through 5, is really the explanation of man's dilemma or man's condition and God's solution, which is justification by faith. And then as you get into Romans chapter 6 and you start marching through 6, 7, and 8, you find the application. Is it Justification gives way to sanctification, to use those big words, which we'll use that word numerous times today. You'll find that the doctrine leads to practice. And that's Paul's pattern. It always says doctrine leads to practice. And Romans chapter 6 is just that. When you look at Romans, uh, it is the most logical of all of Paul's letters. Uh, It has a nice flow to it. He is very methodical in how he would address those who would be contrary to the gospel with a lot of rhetorical questions. It also has a nice flow in regards to unfolding the application, which hopefully we will see today in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 breaks out into three separate sections, which are all certainly uh, uh, connected, but verses 1 through 11 is all about our union in Christ, our union in his death, and our union in his resurrection. The key uh, verse, or the summary verse, Of the first section, verses 1 through 11, is verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There is the fruit of the gospel. It is our union in Christ, in his death, in his resurrection. And what does that provide for the Christian? It provides power. It provides power to live the Christian life. And then we go down to verses 12 through 14, uh, the next section. And it begins the application of the union. And the key summary verse is verse 13, where Paul would now say, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In verses 1 through 11, something happens to us. In verses 12 and beyond, now we're responsible to do something because something has happened to us. Is that we've been we've been removed from Adam, placed in Christ. Verses one through eleven, and verses twelve through fourteen says, "Now that you've been given power in your life, you have the power to choose not to live the whole lo- the old lifestyle." He would say, "Do not present your members to sin." He wouldn't say that before our union in Christ because we could not. And then in verses fifteen through twenty three, we have our identity. We have our identity as a result of our union in Christ. And I won't read the entirety of verses 15 through 23. We're going to look at those. But the summary verses is verse 22 and 23, where we get the word sanctification and we get the word eternal life. This is the first time in Romans chapter 6 that the word sanctification will appear. It happens in verses 19 and verse 22. And we have uh, the words eternal life. This also appears twice in this section, verses 22 and 23. Eternal life has appeared prior to in the chapter, I'm sorry, in Romans, two other times leading up to this. But as as Paul would wind down this portion and start to really define the Christian life in the warfare of Romans 7 and the, the, the mountaintop of Romans 8, he would remind us of these two truths. The truth of sanctification and the truth of eternal life. And if if there's anything that you need to understand and that I need to understand in regards to the Christian life, it is these two truths. It is sanctification and it is eternal life. And so we want to define those terms, and then we're going to look at the application as Paul would at the end of Romans 6. This, to me, is to enable you and me to grasp the whole of the Christian life. It is captured in sanctification and eternal life. And let's define the terms. First in Romans chapter 6, verse 19 through 23, you will see the word sanctification appear in 19 as well as into 22. He says in verse 19, now present your members as slaves to righteousness. And notice what the word is, leading to sanctification. Meaning that the imputed righteousness of Romans 3.21 through the end of chapter 5 of Christ giving us his righteousness is to lead us somewhere. It is a state of declaration. It is justification. And Paul would say that's to lead you into sanctification. He also, in verse 22, he would say that sanctification leads to what else? Eternal life. And so we have this important word that if I was to ask you to define sanctification, most of you would be able to give me the definition. You would say it means to be set apart, it means to be holy. Uh, And that is true, but it's incomplete there's far more involved in this sanctification. And if you're a Christian today, if you've genuinely met Jesus Christ and you're justified, then you need to understand sanctification because those two are inseparable. Is you cannot be right with God and not walk with God. And that's what sanctification truly is. But let's take a look at this word sanctification. It has a wide range of spiritual experiences and it is decisively different from the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the word means to be hollow, hallow. Hollow is what we had in West Virginia, which we drove up into to hunt. Hallow, consecrate, set apart, holy. That is the idea. And the central idea in the Old Testament of sanctification is to set something apart for divine purposes. Now, here's the key difference. In the Old Testament, sanctification was an external practice. It emphasized external conduct. And this is mostly illustrated in the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood. Even God's people who were set apart. It included ceremonial rituals and strict adherence to God's moral law. But what the Old Testament did not do... In sanctification is what the New Testament does. And get a hold of this. Sanctification in the Old Testament was all about the external. Sanctification in the New Testament is all about the internal. It's all about going from uh, the, the external practices of the Old into the New Testament of inward transformation, of change. It still means it has the same definition. Consecrated. Holy for divine purposes to include ownership. And the emphasis, as I mentioned, is internal transformation. And if you really want to understand what the definition, the simple definition of sanctification in the New Testament it is this. Conformity to the image of Christ. That is what it means to be sanctified as a Christian. And so I th- it's easy to see by the pictures or the metaphors, even of the Christian life, how justification and sanctification are inseparable. Is that we are justified by Christ in order to become like Christ? And so we have these pictures of one, the vine and the branches. And tonight, I'm going to preach from John 15 and talk about the abiding in life, abiding in Christ's life, which is the key to the Christian life. But we have the metaphor of the vine and branches, the head and body, and the husband and wife. Those are the pictures of the church, but it's also the pictures of sanctification. And what is essential to understand is this wonderful union that occurs because of justification leading to sanctification. Now what we have um, in in regards to sanctification, as I mentioned, it is the the conformity to the image of Christ. And so it's easy for us to understand that justification is a one-time act by God to us, whereas sanctification is a cooperative work, us with God in the process daily of becoming like Christ. And so what we see then is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 being worked out. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling because it is God that works in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Well, what is the good pleasure of the Lord in his people? It is to make us like Jesus. So if you're going through deep waters of affliction right now and if you're going through deep trials and you're feeling like you're drowning and that you can't hang on for another day, welcome to the work of sanctification. Because that's exactly what God is doing in your life. And if it was easy, if it was easy, it would be sanctification by morality. But it is not easy, and it causes us to get to the end of ourself, and you only find the preciousness of the Lord Jesus when you get to the end of yourself. And so here we have Paul identifying sanctification, and he says, listen, righteousness leads to that. So if you understand salvation, if I understand salvation, what it means is, is that God has pulled me out of the cesspool of my sin. He has transferred me from the family of darkness into the family of light. And he's doing the daily construction work of making me like my elder brother, the Lord Jesus. And so you can see that the person who says, yeah, I'm saved, been been a Christian for 20 years, and there's been zero change in their life that there's been absolutely no fruit in regards to character development like Christ, that person needs to sit back and look at the foundation. Because the radical nature of being a Christian is that you no longer are what you were and God is making you what you're going to be. And so Paul would tell us then in Romans chapter 6 that all this death to sin and all this don't put your members to slaves of sin, all this is to point us away from what we were so that we would walk in the newness of what we are. Well, there's another term that he would use. We're going to define that one, and that is eternal life. Now, if I ask you what eternal life was, I wonder how many of you would just look at me and say, well, that's easy. I'm going to live forever. Some of you would say that. That's not an insult. That's what I kind of thought it was. Eternal life. It says eternal. Okay, ever, forever. Um, No, that's immortality. And every single one of us are immortal beings. We are going to live forever. Not because of eternal life. We're going to live forever because God has created us as immortal souls. And so, you may not be a Christian today, and you may not have experienced new birth, uh, but you're going to live forever. Uh, what's, what's the determining uh, thing in this life is whether you're going to live in heaven or you're going to exist in hell. That's, the, that's what this life is about. And so, when you look at this aspect of eternal life, dismiss any thought that it means that you're going to live forever. It's not. It's not about duration, it's about quality. It's about quality. And twice, six, twenty-two and twenty-three. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And it said, "It's in." Who, who's in? It's verse twenty-two. Who's in? It's in. Who's the "its" sanctification? And so, sanctification is pointing us not only to the growth of conformity into the image of Christ in this life, but it points to the fruition or the completion of the Christian life in, eternal, in eternity. So what does eternal life mean? John, tell, uh, John tells us that in Jesus' high priestly prayer. And listen to this. John 17, verse 1, when Jesus has spoken these words. Now, get a picture. This is, this is holy ground, we get to observe Jesus pray. Can you imagine what that would be like? Is to be there at the, at the last supper and to see Jesus. And it says, "In Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. He may have lifted his hands. We know in Gethsemane he fell on his face. But imagine Jesus now, he lifts his, lift up his eyes to heaven. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh, and get this, to give eternal life, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then in verse three, he defines what eternal life is. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He did not say, Father, you have given me authority over all flesh so that they can earn eternal life. Nor does he say so that they might gain a whole bunch of knowledge about you. Or that they might have the right theology and be able to define all uh, the, uh, the doctrines and maybe be able to parse all these verbs. No, he didn't say that. And they all had their place. He says that they might know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. J.I. Packer. Uh, he wrote a classic book. And some of you have read it, I've recommended it before. I strongly recommend you read it. Uh, his book is called "Knowing God," And it is absolutely gold. It will never lose its punch." And so Packer says this quote, "Interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing him." Get a hold of that. Interest in theology. And knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes, even have a Christian worldview, is not at all the same thing as knowing Him. End quote. I was thinking, what would be a good illustration in my life of that? And I thought about growing up, you know, in school, and I thought about I knew about the ocean. I saw pictures of the ocean. I read about the ocean. I had a good knowledge about the ocean. I could, I could point them out on a map, all the oceans. I mean, I, I, had a, I had a working knowledge of the oceans. But I really knew the ocean when I rode on the oceans. When I spent 14 years in the Navy riding on the oceans. I know the ocean. I know what it is out of experience. And here's the difference, beloved. Is it... Paul would say that we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to not have our members commit sin. Not just to merely escape the wrath of God. And not to have God's favor. None of that. He says you put all this stuff away. So that you will be in the process of sanctification. So that you'll grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus and of God. In relationship with them. Christianity is all about relationship. It's all about our relationship with the living God. And now we're going to work our way through 19, verse 19, through the end of the chapter. Because we defined our terms, sanctification, eternal life. And we want to see how that plays out in the Christian experience. The Christian life really can be summarized in this this short little path. It's from identity to conduct to relationship. Identity to conduct to relationship. Now don't say, I'm not giving you a three-step process, go home and try to do this. I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. Is that what I'm doing is I'm showing each of us that they're inseparable, but your identity produces your conduct. And your conduct is designed to foster relationship. You know, it applies in even friendships. It applies in marriages. It applies across the board. Your identity drives, fuels, and produces your conduct. If you're not a Christian today, you live for the world. You're consumed with the world. You're consumed with all the stuff that's in this fading world. Why? Because that's your identity. Is your identity is manifested in what you do? Is it you can find people that are Christians and, and certainly see those who are non-Christians just by their conduct. What does that mean? Not because of their conduct, it's because of their identity. Remember, the, remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 5? That there are two there are two humanities. You either in Adam That's your identity. That means everything about your life is about the world. Even if you carve out an hour on Sunday for church, that doesn't make you a Christian. But if you're in Christ, then the conduct will reflect the relationship with the living God. Let's let's work through this. Verse 19. The first thing we see is our identity. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Paul is so pastoral in his approach. He handles Christians how they should be handled. He handles them right where they are. And he knows, he's never met these, but they know that he knows that they're, they're young. And he, this is a pattern he does. He always handles people where they are. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. There's sanctification uh, that is the byproduct or I should say the fruit of righteousness. So what, what is our identity now? What are, what are we as Christians he says right here, you are slave to righteousness. Now, we already looked at this, and we're not going to go back. But this is one of Paul's methods of teaching. It's contrast. He teaches by contrast. All throughout Romans, we've seen that. He teaches by contrast. And he's saying your identity, if you're a Christian today, if you've experienced new birth, and, and let me qualify that. If you've come to the end of yourself, and you realize that you have a sin weight hanging over you, that you can't get it off, that there's nothing you can do, and you've run to Christ, and you've experienced forgiveness based on what he's done, not what you've done. By the way, all you bring, I think Jonathan Edwards said that, all you bring to your salvation is your sin. That's all you bring, and that's all it takes. And so when, when you understand this, do you understand that your identity, I came to Christ, and, and when it says here a slave of righteousness, I don't want you to look at that slave of righteousness just as conduct, it's not. Remember, everything's relational in the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, uh, we find that God the Father has made Jesus Christ our wisdom, our sanctification, our redemption, and our righteousness. These are not just characters of traits of God. These are the very being of God himself. And so when you look at being a slave of righteousness, you need to understand that and you need to read that for what it is. I am a slave to Christ because he is your righteousness. And the key to understanding your identity, and beloved, you've got to get this. You have to get this. You must understand what happened to you as a Christian. You must understand that God invaded your life and gave you new life. And you must understand out of that new life, you became a slave to him. That is the delight of your soul that is the most precious thing in your life and that you know that you are bought with a price identity is so important and theologically we can, we can say this identity is justification that's what it is we are justified people that's our identity but identity as I mentioned it gives way to conduct and that's at the end of verse 19 leading to sanctification. Now, what Paul does in, in Romans six nineteen, he just repeats what he said in six twelve 12 through 14. He says, do not present your members to sin, but present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Now, it's important that we understand, uh, look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for bo- rights. That's your body, it's all the members all, the, all the, uh, uh, the aspects of your life. Your hands, your feet, your brain, your tongue, your, uh, all, all that. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you notice what he does in the second one? He doesn't say just present your members. He says present yourself. Here's the Christian life. Friends, you're not your own. You are not your own. Is that you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And when he looks at you. And the father looks at you. He puts stamped on you mine. You're mine. And because of the ownership. And get this for what it is. We don't have a right to dictate life. (laughs) And the folly to think that we can control anything in life. Is right there as well. Is that you understand that our identity is all new. I now am in the forever family of God. And I have a loving Heavenly Father who has not only stamped mine on my life and your life if you're a Christian, but he also says adopted. And that you are, and when we get to, I'm I'm so, I'm really anxious in a good way. Um, I also get anxious in a bad way. Uh, But I'm looking forward to when we get to this part in Romans when we talk about adoption. We're going to spend some time talking about adoption because it's it's so important i don't think christians really understand what it means to be in a family of god and so we want to talk about uh the fatherhood of god and we want to talk about the elder brother the lord jesus he didn't get a whole lot of press in that relationship remember what he said and remember it says in hebrew he's not ashamed to call us brothers and so we want, to look at, we want to look at adoption. We want to look at what the, the Christian uh, teaching on us uh, of adoption. But that, that's for another time. Uh, let's move on now. And we see the next thing. And, and we hit on this a little bit. Is um, that sanctification. Sanctification begins with our identity. It shifts to our conduct. It shifts to our conduct. And what is our conduct as, as Christians? You say, well, it's it's obey all the commands. It is. It is. But you know what the primary conduct is for the Christian? The primary conduct is not the external. It's the internal. It's the transformation. It's working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Working out salvation is the working out of becoming more and more like Christ. That's what it is. Remember sanctification? To set apart in the Old Testament, external. Sanctification in the New Testament is internal conformity to the image of Christ. And so I would encourage you to ask those questions about, about your life. Am I becoming more like Jesus? You say, well, what does Jesus, how, how would I know that? Well, I would, I would ask you to get a heavy dose of the Gospels, take a heavy dose of the Gospels, and then look at the fruit of the Spirit. Read the Gospels, read them, read them uh, consistently and see how Jesus acted and see how Jesus treated people and see how patient, patient Jesus was, and see the mercy of Jesus. And if, to really get a, a true assessment of that, whether this conduct is modeling Christ, that's what sanctification is. And I would not only lean on what you think you are, ask someone that really knows you. Maybe it's, uh, uh, maybe it's in the marriage. Ask, ask your spouse, or ask a dear brother or sister that is honest with you, that's able to tell you whether or not you are manifesting Christ-like character. Now, that means you're in some relationships with Christians. That means that you are known. And it's easy to tell if someone's growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy. Now, here, here's, here's a way. Um, and now, don't yell at me after the service about what I'm going to say, all right? You know, but here's something. We live in a world that is absolutely in chaos. We live in a world that is, that is so godless and it's increasing. And we live in a world where we're being consumed with falsehoods. Uh, we are, there's no truth out there. We're watching the, the very fabric of our country. It's been ripped apart. Uh, it will not return. In World War II, when we went into World War II, there was a unity about the nation. Everybody, uh, We will never have that again. If there is a World War III, if there is, we will not see that unity in the country anymore. We are rupturing from the inside out. You know what a Christian has to do, not to get wrapped up in it. And if you find yourself in conversation with Christians and it's more about what's going on in the world instead of Him who rules the world, then you're really struggling. Far too often, Christians, we are complaining about what's going on in the world, and we're complaining about the president, or we're complaining about this, and we're complaining about that, and we're saying, oh, as if God's not in charge. And I'm thinking, why are we complaining about what's happening? Why are we arguing these different political things? Why are we saying that that this is happening? Why is all this happening when we need to sit down and say, wait, wait, wait. Get a heavy dose of the Psalms. The Lord reigns. The nations will tremble. That's a sign of spiritual growth. That you're not so wrapped up in a lather over what's happening out there. But you're at peace in here because you know, you know. You know the king is still on the throne. And you know the king is still working on all things. And maybe part of our sanctification is the world crumbling around us. So God will get us to trust him. And not complain that the world is crumbling around us. Let's move on to the third part. So we'll know conduct. Remember conduct. Or the, being a slave of righteousness. It's not just doing right. It's conforming into the image of him. Who is our righteousness. That's what our conduct is about. That's what sanctification is about. And like I said, ask someone who really knows you well that they'll be honest with you and they'll say, you know what? I see a little bit of patience. Not a lot. And I see and I see a little bit of love. But let's remember this. When you look at the fruit of the Spirit, it's it's not fruits. It's fruit. It is a cluster. You can't just say, Well, I got I got this one, but nah, I'm a little short on No, it doesn't work that way. Is that it's the work of the Spirit is developing all of them in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Can you imagine what our neighbors and our world and our church would be like if we Christians were truly being sanctified into the image of Christ? Can you imagine the impact it would have to a world that is so afraid out there and we're walking around? I'm not say we're we'll walking around jumping happy in Jesus all the day. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what would happen in all of our conversations if it was called by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What if we're confronting the the sinners out there as friend of sinners and we're not entering the fray of telling, of complaining what's wrong but we are manifesting the fruit of the spirit and pointing those people to the one who controls the world. That's what conduct's all about. Let's take take a look at the part. So then we see from uh, Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11, we see identity. Then we see uh, 12 and 14, uh, we see conduct. And now from 15 to 23, we see relationship. Relationship. And when I say that is that we're beginning uh, looking on uh, Look at verse 17. From 17 on that's where we have the word sanctification which is conforming to Christ and Paul would bring eternal life into it. And eternal life is what? It's knowing God. It's knowing Jesus Christ. But notice verse 17. But thanks be to God. You know that's the, that's the first time that that occurs in Romans except uh, since the very first opening. So he d- defines all this doctrine. And then here in the application that leads to relationships, he says, thanks be to God. One of the the chief marks of a healthy relationship with God is the spirit of thanksgiving. It is one of the high marks of of being a spirit-filled Christian is giving thanks. And so when I'm tempted to, to complain about the world around me, I probably should stop no, no, I should stop and turn around there and say, Father, I thank you that I'm in time and space in history for gospel purposes. The more you give thanks, the more you give thanks, the more that your relationship with God will develop. And that's what Paul says, but, but thanks be to God. So he's going from really strong doctrine, now it's relational. And he points to sanctification, and he points to eternal life. What is the shorter catechism? Question one uh, question. What is the chief end of man? And the answer, you know it. To glorify God, and what? Enjoy him. Do you enjoy him? I'm not saying do you know a lot about him. Do you enjoy him? Are you enjoying the Lord Jesus right now? You say, well, that, that seems... Foreign to me well, how do we enjoy him? We enjoy him by knowing him. We enjoy him by the simplicity of the relationship of knowing him. Is it we we grow in our knowledge of knowing him? It appears that Thomas Watson said there is a twofold enjoying of God in this life and the next, and in this life it 's in part. By the the sacraments. By the ordinances. As well as the word. In the next life. It will be the enjoyment of God. In the presence of God. Forever and ever. So if eternal life is knowing God. And it's about relationship to where we are to enjoy God. In giving him thanks. How would I know if I am a possessor of eternal life? What would be some of the evidences in my life. That I have eternal life. Not that I'm going to live forever. Remember it's not that. But what would be the evidence that I know God. That I'm walking with God. And we talked about conformity to the image of God. But I want to give you. uh, As we prepare for the Lord's Supper. I want to give you six. (laughs) And we'll do do the last two at Christmas. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I want to give you six. Now I don't want you to be discouraged by these. But it's important that you understand that when we are born again, God not only gives us a new heart, he also gives us his fear and he gives us a deep desire to know him. Remember when you were first converted or remember when you first discovered uh, the doctrines of grace and you became enamored and new in Christ? Didn't you just, couldn't you get, an, you just couldn't get enough. You, why can't I have church every day? Why can't I read my, I mean, I want, I want so much. I want the Bible. It's just, you know, things of the earth just started, things of the world just started fading and you just couldn't get enough. God places those within us. In and of ourselves, we will not create and cannot create a desire for him. So then when we profess faith in Christ, that we are the recipients of eternal life, the capacity to know God. Now, let me, um, let me give you these six things. I'm going to, I won't talk a lot about them. So maybe a couple of them, uh, but this is important because you can use this as kind of a, kind of a measuring rod to see, are, the, are, are these in my life? Are these present? And now, now, don't think that you have to have this in full bloom because you're not going to have that in full bloom in this life. And there will be ebbing and flowing in the Christian experience. But these will never. They may be like a smoldering wick. And they may be in small measure at times. Because of circumstances in life, because of just the difficulties, you may have, but they will never be out. They may be very small, but they will grow. They have to, why? Because justification leads to sanctification, and sanctification leads to eternal life, and eternal life is knowing God. All right, here they are. Here's the first one. Paul would say that uh, the free gift of God is eternal life and eternal life in Christ Jesus is knowing him. If we are and truly have been born again, if we have been recipients of eternal life, what God gives us, not what we earn, what he gives us. Here's the first one is that the presence of eternal life in the believer, it will produce within us a love for him, a love for him. Now I know that some of you are so sensitive spiritually and you look at your own life and look at my life and say, I do not love him nearly like he deserves to be loved. I, don't, I, I fall so short of, and you can find yourself in a very dark place if you constantly look how you love him. Go there only after you get caught in the wonder that he loves you. Focus more on his love for you. You know what that does? It fuels love for him. But if you focus just on yourself, it's never good to do nothing in the Christian life focus on yourself except except self-examination and self-control and self-discipline and self-denial. Other than that, I don't think there's anything else. So the first thing that if we're the recipients really of eternal life is that we will have a love for Christ. And it will grow. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, though you had not seen him, you love him. And though you're grieved by many trials. And though you're heavy-weighted with the things of the world, you have this love for the Lord Jesus. There is this seed within every true believer that wants to love God, and you grieve when you don't love Him like He should be loved. In the ABF this morning, we were watching The Fear of God by Reeves, and uh, he was, he was um, talking about the blessed confusion. I'd never heard of that before, and uh, I don't have my notes. So if I if I don't get this right, uh, talk to Stephen Maureen. They were there. They can fix me. But uh, but here's what here's what we said on the on the blessed confusion, is that when we see the glory of the gospel and we see the wretchedness within us and we see how sinful we are, we grieve so much for that, but we also rejoice in the grace that saves us. That is the confusion. Oh, wretched man that I am. Praise God for his saving grace. That's like, huh? But that's exactly what it is. And so in this evidence of eternal life is that you do love Christ, but you grieve because you want to love him more. And one of the great things of heaven will be no more hindrances in our love for him. We'll be able to love him fully. But friends, if we're not loving him in this life, do you honestly think you're going to love him in the next? If you're not hungering for him and holiness in this life, what makes you think you're going to be comfortable in heaven? And so the first evidence of eternal life is that we love him. And I, I want to stress this. To love him is to obey him. I've had Christians tell me, I love the Lord. And I've, I've, I've shipped to some. I can't when I counsel some people. When someone says, you know, I really love the Lord. I said, well, tell me how how well are you obeying the Lord? Well, I'm struggling. I said, well, okay, tell me this last week. Just give me three commands that you obeyed. Well, I said, then you don't love the Lord. Yeah, yeah, I really do. No, no, you think you do. (laughs) You know what the measurement of love for God is? It's not your profession. It's your obedience. But it's obedience out of delight because the new birth gives you that. And I admit there's times that obedience is dutiful. I got that. And it's true. I love serving in the Navy. And it was dutiful times where I didn't want to go into the ship. Didn't change the fact I, I love my country. I love serving my country. And so the first evidence of eternal life is that, as Paul would say, sanctification that leads to eternal life is that we love God. And it's loved by our obedience. Secondly, if, if we have eternal life, if we've been changed, if we're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness or Christ, is that it'll be evidenced by our fellowship and communion with him. We talked about this yesterday at the husband's study briefly. There is a difference, and I'll mention that tonight, is that there's a difference between union in Christ and communion with Christ. Union in Christ is justification. We're there, we're in him communion with Christ is abiding in him and the evidence of eternal life is just that is that we are enjoying fellowship with God now that kind of may, may blow up some of our understanding of fellowship because fellowship with God doesn't mean there has to be food First John 1 3 that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ and this is what sanctification does. It leads us to knowing God and to know him is to love him and we long to be with him. Now, there have there been those times that you just couldn't wait to get alone with your Bible and get alone in prayer so that you would know God? Not that you would just read it just to read it, but to know God. That's the side of eternal life. You want to commune with him. You want to fellowship with him. There's a third quality in the um, in the person possessing eternal life, not only to love him and to fellowship with him, but to adore him. To adore him. Second Thessalonians says that when Christ comes, the believers are going to marvel over him. That word marvel means to admire or to be caught up in wonder, astonishment, even. Have you recently adored the Lord? Has God in His Spirit and His Word illuminated the person of Christ where you've seen the beauty of Christ? And do you find your soul in a rapturous state because of the beauty of Christ, the wonderful adoring of Him? That's a sign of eternal life. Then there's another one. Um, To have eternal life is to worship Him. Is to worship Him. For the sake of time, uh, I, I encourage you to read Revelation 4 and 5. And spend a lot of time in there because that is the that is the wonderful, wonderful worship scene we see in heaven. Revelation five, eleven. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Heaven's gonna be a loud place. That's why I love loud crying babies. It's awesome. It's awesome. To have eternal life is to worship Him. How could it not be anything else? To know Him is to love Him. To know Him is to adore Him. To know Him is to worship Him. And then here's another one. To know Him is to long for Him. Is to long for Him. So let me ask you this past week, have you so longed for Him? I'm not saying because you're going through rough waters that you're longing for heaven. I'm not talking about the place. I'm talking about the person. Have you had your heart so yearning to see him? So yearning to where you cry out, Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Could you look right now in heaven? Could I look right now in heaven and say, you know my life? There is not a single thing or single relationship in this world that is more important to me than you. You know what that is? Biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is to know God so that we would love him, that we would adore him, that we would worship him, and that we'd had this yearning burning inside of us to be with him just in some small way and I've told you when you come back from deployments it's Veterans Day weekend and for all of you who have served I appreciate your service is that coming back from deployment I mentioned last a couple weeks ago that when you leave to go on deployment it's, 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 a, it's a hard time everybody's sat on the ship you're leaving your port and you look around and you're not going to see anybody for 6, 7, maybe 8 months it's a sad time but what about the day before you're going to tie up what about the day, the day before you're pulling in and then the next morning, because no one sleeps. I mean, it's just like a kid at Christmas. You're, you're going home. And you, and, and you turn, and you, you're pulling into the, the tugs are pulling you into the pier, and you stand out, if you're able to stand out. I was able to stand on the bridge wing uh, when we would come back, and you look there, and you see all the families on the pier. Maybe not myriads and myriads, but they're everywhere, and what are they looking for? they looking for? and they're holding signs, you know, and in the midst of all that crowd, you're just so full of anticipation, you can't wait to see. And in the midst of all the thousands of dependents on the pier, I was only looking for one. I was looking for one. Now she had three little ones in tow, but I was looking for one. Are you looking for one right now? Are you longing for him? Because the more you long for him, the more that the attachments of the world are severed. The more that your heart is unhitched from the affections of this world. Why? Because justification leads to sanctification that leads to eternal life. And then the final thing that is a mark of eternal life, not only do you long for him, but you want to be with him. You want to be with him. Jesus' prayer becomes ours. John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Isn't that a staggering thing? Jesus longs for our our presence. And I read that and I thought, do I long for him as much as he longs for me? So as we close chapter 6 and we prepare for communion, ask the question, as Paul would, would put out the roadmap, Are you a justified person? Have you trusted Christ and gone from being an Adam? Now you're in Christ. And because you now know new birth. And that you have the capacity to know God. You are working out your salvation and sanctification. You are conf- your conduct is conforming you more into the image of Christ. And as a result of that the relationship. The eternal life of knowing him. It gets sweeter and sweeter with every passing year and that you start to realize how much you do love him, also how little you do, and that you look forward to that day where you love him more. Are you adoring him as he deserves to be adored, worshiping him, longing to see him, longing for him? That's the mark of a Christian. And it certainly is what God needs to recover in his church because we don't have that. We need him to send revival so that we'll see the beauty of Christ and that we'll see what eternal life truly is. Because to know him is to love him. Father, thank you so much for the goodness and the grace that's in you and it's in Christ. And I pray, Lord, for anyone under the sound of my voice that if they only know about Christ, that today they would you would open their heart and bring them to him and show... Him, and the beauty of Him, the ugliness of their sin, and how there is reconciliation. That because of the cross, and as we take the Lord's Supper, and we concentrate and focus on that, let us do so with enjoyment. Because truly, it is the chief end of, chief end of man that we would glorify You and enjoy You. And You are most delighted when we find ourselves enjoying You. May that be so today, Father, for Christ's sake. Amen.